every single marketer and every single brand should be attempting to earn a disproportionate share of conversation. If you work for an organization where they say, bring us a chart that goes up and to the right, you have a challenge. Half the money I spend on advertising is wasted. The trouble is, I don't know which half. I am here to inspire you, to excite you, to motivate you, to transform you, to energize you. Hello, and welcome to Demand Gen Visionaries. This episode features an interview with Suzanne Conkle, CMO of Deloitte, an industry leader in audit, consulting, tax, and advisory services to many of the world's most admired brands. Suzanne's trifecta of business, technology, and marketing experience provides the essential foundation for spearheading marketing and sales in an era of rapid change and groundbreaking innovation. On this episode, Suzanne discusses the mechanics of engendering customer loyalty, innovating marketing within long-standing companies, and evaluating the human experience within B2B marketing. But before we get into it, here's a brief word from our sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by our friends at Qualified.com. If you are a B2B marketer who has always dreamed of knowing when a qualified prospect is on your site and being able to talk to them instantly, now you can. Learn more at Qualified.com. So please enjoy this interview between Suzanne Kaunkel and your host, Ian Faison. Welcome to Demand Gen Visionaries. I'm Ian Faison, CEO of Caspian Studios, and today we are joined by a special guest. Suzanne, how are you? I'm great. Thanks for asking. And yourself? You know, it's a great day. It's a great day. We're across the water from each other. You're in San Francisco. I'm in Oakland. It's a great, great sunny day. And I'm super excited to chat about marketing, chat about your background, and all the cool stuff that's going on at Deloitte, a name that I grew up seeing all over here in the Bay Area and, uh, and, and really in the rest of the world. So let's get into it. How did you get started for the very first time in DemandGen? Great. Well, when I saw this question, I sort of laughed because probably my first interaction with Demand Gen was actually as a brownie selling Girl Scout cookies. And I joke about that. That's obviously a B2C reference. But there were some early on lessons for that. One is that brand really does enable Demand Gen. And that was certainly clear about why people were buying cookies from me. And then the other funny story is where we lived at the time I was doing this, there was actually quite a long distance between houses. And so I knew we were supposed to go door to door and and sell these cookies. But I thought, well, why would you do that when you could just pick up the phone and call? Now, unbeknownst to it, my sister was about two minutes behind every one of my phone calls. So she was just enraged that I had the audacity to be going through that channel so I learned early on about omni-channel and, and making sure that the, the sales fit the channel you were choosing. But, but in all seriousness, I've been in the B2B world for a very long time. I grew up at Deloitte. And as a partner in the firm, you are selling work all the time and doing your own marketing and selling. The interesting wrinkle as well that you'll see as I answer some of the questions is that I also was advising my clients. So I was selling engagements, but in the engagements, I was actually helping primarily big technology companies use the marketing and sales levers to grow profitably as well. So I've had a lot of work in that area over the last 20 plus years. And I do laugh frequently that the job I have now is a little bit of penance for all of those years, probably not having enough empathy for how hard it is to actually land some of these things with my clients. I love that. <laughs> the, the old penance marketer. I can, I can read the book now. 
So tell me a little bit about your role at Deloitte and what it means. Yeah, sure. So I am the chief marketing officer in the U.S. for Deloitte. I have two significant sort of areas of remit. On the marketing side, I have what most traditional CMOs have. I have brand and sponsorships. I have industry and offering marketing. I have internal comms. I have external comms and PR. So, and, you know, have the demand gen capability as well. I also have, just to keep things interesting, and I certainly like this aspect of the job, but I do have on the sales enablement side, I own our CRM system. I have pursuit centers and I have a role that we call sales executives. Let's get to our first segment, the trust tree. With the knowledge you've been given, you are now on the inside of what I like to call the circle of trust. What, I thought we were in the trust tree in the nest, are we not? This is where you can go and feel honest and trusted and you can share those deepest, darkest demand gen and marketing secrets. First off, I, th- I think we all know a little bit of what Deloitte does, but what really does Deloitte do? Who are your customers? Yeah, sure. So a little bit about Deloitte. Deloitte is the world's largest professional services company. We're a 175-year-old brand, something that we're very proud of. We have about 350,000 people in 150 different countries. So a very complex organization, a very complex set of products, if you will, largely a service-based organization, but we do have a very rich and growing complement of products in that marketplace. So when you think about our customers, as we do frequently, it really is the, we serve over 90% of the Fortune 500. We have a very vibrant book of business around federal and local and state government, uh, a lot of private organizations and nonprofit organizations. So we really do run the gamut across the major industry sectors. So again, That is sort of the great news about the firm and why our growth is super healthy. It also is the challenge with marketing because it's not as simple as sort of saying like, I sell this water bottle. So that is one of the challenges. But when you think about why people are loyal to Deloitte, it is because we have, we're trying to help our clients solve their biggest and most complex business problems. So we can bring a lot of different thinking, we can bring enterprise level technology, we can bring next gen technology, we can bring human capital, we can bring security, risk, financial advisory, we can bring all of the things that today's customers really need to be able to solve their their thorniest business issues. And so what does this buying process look like? Who's the buying committee? How long does this take? I mean, I imagine this is like, you know, organizational change, massive levers that are that are being pulled within an organization. So what does what does marketing this product for for sales look like? Yeah, I mean a couple of different things. We are squarely in the B2B space. I think I've mentioned that. We do have a very we, we rely very heavily on what other companies would call a direct sales organization. In our organization, that's called a partnership. And with respect to who the buyer is, traditionally, you think about the CXO, right? And so you think about the CFO and they're selling, and we're selling to that individual trust, but that trust comes through things like audit, financial advisory, tax, security, privacy, all of those different sets of services. 
And we have a host of relationships that are important to us, I would say, all the way through the middle level of management, all the way to the top of the house. And like a lot of companies, it depends on what are the stakes, how big is the deal, how broad is the set of offerings that are in that deal, which would dictate whether that is a single buyer or a multi-buyer. I think the other thing that we think a lot about in marketing today that we perhaps didn't think as much about 10 years ago is the number of influencers that you have with those deals, whether it's third-party analysts, alliance partners, peer companies, like all of those kinds of things. And that is a formal target of a lot of our marketing activities in ways that it wasn't really, we weren't doing as much around that, you know, again, like 10 years ago. Yeah. With, with the direct sales model, like you were talking about and and so many different stakeholders that you're trying to get in front of and make sure that that Deloitte is front center. How do you think about segmenting your organization to support all that, all of those efforts? Yeah, so we have a pretty robust client segmentation. And within those segments, it's, it is, again, the analog is very strong with what you'd find in traditional product companies with respect to your enterprise customers and, and your different sort of tiers. We also think a lot about industry because one of the things that is, it is one of our keys to success is sort of the industry differences with a lot of our offerings. Industry is a layer that we think about quite significantly. And then again, we do have a variety of, of go-to-market motions that would tee off against those customer segments. And how does demand fit into your marketing strategy? So demand generation is a is a big deal for us. We right now as we speak are going through a pretty pretty significant transformation with respect to really balancing our marketing set of activities and the marketing portfolio between brand and demand gen. If you look at Deloitte generally speaking, it for us is a market share slash share of wallet game for us versus a a straight up customer acquisition. There are various parts of our business that are in the customer acquisition space, but mostly it's share of wallet. So we're really interested in demand generation across the spectrum of offerings. And so if you think about awareness of Deloitte is very, very high, what we may or may not have is loyalty everywhere we want it and or awareness of all of the things we do. So demand generation for us is really important and has become increasingly important in COVID world because as you can imagine in a relationship selling model, we disproportionately relied before COVID on being able to like physically see and hear things. And so for us, demand gen is an ability to cover more of the market and to make it much easier for our direct selling partners to be able to cover more of the market. It's also an increasingly just critical skill for us to be able to listen to clients more where they are and when they're doing things that we're not exactly in front of. So we're spending a lot of time on thinking through what does demand gen look like for us and what does that capability look like to, again, augment and support the things that our people are doing in the direct selling motion. Such a unique problem, 170-year-old company brand awareness is, it's got to be 100%, right? The market, I mean, it's like, especially in the US, right? You just, every single person knows knows Deloitte, but that maybe they don't know what's new. Maybe they don't know uh, about the offerings. Maybe that's not the part of their business and now it is, or maybe they switch roles. A very unique challenge. Yeah, that that is, and 
That, that's very well said. That is, we spend a lot of time at the brand level on really trying to engender loyalty. So it does extend permission to a lot of the newer services that we're offering and or the newer things that there are available in the world, like some of the next gen tech and, and things like that, that we weren't historically known as. Yeah, that's it's one of the things that, that can be tough about that is that you get known for one thing and then now you have to try to be known for, for something new or something different or something innovative or something that might feel a longstanding company always feels safe, right? You say, well, they've been around 170. They're at least going to be around the next 170, right? It's sort of a thing. I think we all do that calculus in our head. And so switching that, that mindset of saying, Hey, this, well, this certain thing that we're working on is extremely innovative. Is, is that tough to like market those type of ideas? Yes and no. I mean, what I would say is, and I often say this to our teams, right, is that what we need to do is talk to the market about who we are and why we're different, not just what we do. And we do use down funnel demand gen to talk about what we do, but we try to do all of our top of funnel and middle of funnel work around who we are and why we're different. And then that does allow for the permission and the loyalty to enable the specific offerings that we're trying to put in the marketplace. And that is something that we've had to change pretty dramatically over the years. And while I appreciate what you're saying about the 175 years, I think that one of the things that we've seen is that to have that kind of longevity, you have to be always in the adaptation mode, right? Because the world's not sitting still and certainly we're not either. Let's get to our next segment, the playbook. This is what's great about sports. This is what the greatest thing about sports is. You play to win the game. Hello? You play to win the game. This is where you open up that playbook and talk about the tactics that help you win. What are your three channels or tactics that are uncuttable budget items? Yeah, so it's a great question. I guess I look at it differently. So I would say that if you're a modern CMO, that you can't actually think about cutting channels, you should always be thinking about percentage and priorities of those channels. So I do believe that all the channels exist for a reason. And then it's really about using thinking through the lens of your business strategy, which are the channels that you should be investing in at what levels. And what I've also said to our teams is that that should be constantly evolving and should change based on where we're at with the offering maturity and things like that. So I mean, COVID, we saw this in spades, right? You think w many of us were long in sort of physical events. We then spent and did heroic things to immediately switch to virtual events overnight only to then see that six to eight months later, we needed to switch to hybrid and really sort of tease apart what belonged in person and what was better in a mid-tier and what was better in a big event and all that sort of thing. So I do try to think about it less as sort of what am I doing that I would cut, but more sort of where, do, what does the portfolio look like and where do I want to, my son's a DJ, so you think about the music mix, right? Where do I want to amplify the bass or take it back down in a different part of the song? Yeah, and what what are the? He probably would cringe if he heard that. By the way, he'd be like, "Ah, uh, nice try, not quite right." Hey, you know, I, <laughs> I'm here for it, and he he should be too. He's getting getting references on a podcast. 
It's interesting that you say that kind of like turning up and down. Now that now that's going to be the theme of the show, turning up and down <laughs> the dials there, because I think that it feels like that sometimes where you say, okay, well, maybe we're going to do a large push of paid for this particular amount of time. Maybe we're going to spend this time and create a bunch of, of content or think about, hey, maybe we're going to sponsor a bunch of events versus maybe we should focus on making some of our own events and, and doing things more that way. It's kind of this constant like buyer build, buyer build sort of thing that we were always right. doing. What are the things that you bought, bought or built in the past year or so that you were especially proud of? Well, I think one of the things that we do particularly well is, first of all, having that question and not thinking that we need to build everything. One of the lens through which we look at the world and sort of the business issues that our clients have is that in this world, you don't go it alone, right? It is most things are done best together. And so really leaning on whether it's alliance partners or media partners or whatever the case may be to their mutual advantage. And so really figuring out what's the lane that we should play in and can perform the best. So I think we do a pretty good job of that. One of the things that we're trying to do a lot more around our on the build side is what we're calling both Deloitte Stories and, and Deloitte Originals, which is a space where we're going to tell more stories about how we do the work we do and what are the ongoing lessons inherent in that. Because we do think we have a role that we probably underplayed with respect to, you just think about internal to Deloitte, keeping 350,000 people up to date, ready to go, fully deployed, with the latest thinking, right? Those are some of the things that we could probably be playing a more significant role with our customers around in different ways than we historically have. Yeah, just thinking about the massive advantage of having 300 and something plus, thousand plus employees is cool. Just, you know, thinking of being in that many email emails sent per day uh, is exciting as a marketer. <laughs> yeah, it's... Yeah. Well, and, and it was funny because I, I do try to do a lot of talking and speaking externally with other people. And I always joke with my B2C CMOs, imagine a world in which all of your products walked and talked <laughs> and interacted with your customers every day. So that's both the blessing and the challenge for sure. Yeah, seriously. All, all more important to, to keep everybody on message. This is a loaded question, but yeah. with a brand that everybody knows... How much do you need to invest in brand? Do you still need to do it? Well, it's funny. And I, I love the fact that you, a funny story, I was in Washington, D.C. at one point in time with my son, who was then like five, and I was pointing out random things. And so I pointed out a Deloitte building and he looked at me and he goes, Mama, Deloitte is everywhere. And then he paused and he said, he goes, just like Nike and Adidas. <laughs> <laughs> and so I love that story. You know, he's a little bit yeah. biased, but I appreciate what you're saying. I will say that if you think about the Deloitte you knew 10 years ago, it is dramatically different than the Deloitte that exists today. And when we think ahead as to what the complement of offerings that our clients need in five years, it will be dramatically different as well. So that's the that's the work that we do on the brand space is that, again, if you think about um, typically, we have clients that they may have bought 
tax advisory services from us for 20 years, but they may or may not think about us when, when, when it comes to cyber purchases, or they may not understand all of the human capital capabilities that we have and are invested in. They may not know that we have a product called Converge that sells a lot of, of data and insights. So that's the, that's the piece on the brand that we need to, because the brand has traditionally been probably over attached to what we do rather than again who we are and why we're different which is a pivot that we've been trying to make our buddy chandar said on this podcast many moons ago that he, he likes to paint the sky koopa blue but I, I think that that's the great thing right it's like everywhere somebody looks you want to you want to be there and it was to your point earlier about channels of how you don't want to be talk about cutting channels you want to talk about how you're investing in them and and, and shifting the spend what are some investments that you've made that are from a campaign perspective or a sponsorship perspective or a bandwidth perspective that that you uh, you're you're excited about? Yeah, let me give you a couple of examples. One, we do have some marquee sponsorships that we're investing in, notably and true to my heart. We have USGA, we have the USTA. We've historically been a big sponsor of the Olympics, and I'm proud of what we do there because we don't use it only as a top of the funnel sponsorship. We're really using it as a way to have client experiences. And we like to showcase things that are unexpected with the types of things we do in those sponsorships. So for example, what we've done with the USGA is some really interesting things with AR, VR capabilities that we enable to allow you to experience the game in different ways through the uses of those technologies. So that's that's an example. We're also doing a pretty significant transformation, as I said right now, with respect to demand gen, and that will allow us to cover more of the market and to really augment the strength that we've had in traditional relationship selling. And the reason why, yes, I know what that does for Deloitte, but it actually really does a lot of things for our clients as well, because they've, particularly in COVID, they've reached out to us and asked for more content at the time at which they need it and want it in some different formats than they maybe historically have. And it allows us to listen to them in a very dramatically different way than we historically have. So I think that's really important. And then last but not least, we are really rethinking the role of our website. Again, traditionally in our corner of the B2B world, the website was interesting, but it was a little bit more of a narrow niche that it filled. And what we're really thinking about it as the commerce capability of a website isn't that interesting to us today. It will be more interesting as we get into some markets that we're in right now, but we'll be in in very significant ways. But again, it's a really good way for us to listen to our clients and have them help shape what we're putting forward from a content perspective in ways that they want to be engaged with. We can do some interesting things around role-based content. We can nurture relationships through the website. And certainly in the B2B world, as you know well, people want the website to be able to do research and background and, and things like that. And so we are investing pretty significantly in that kind of functionality with our website going forward. Yeah, that's cool. So let me let me dig into that a little bit more. For a website like like Deloitte, where you have tons of of stuff, tons of content, how big of an undertaking is something like that? How do you 
and how do you take all of that to be like as responsive as you can? Cause like you said, it's, it's about share a wallet. It's about your sales process is, is pretty unique. So if someone's on there and they're a client, you definitely want to know if, if you need to be talking to them in real time or what, what problem they're having. Yeah. So this is not unique to me or whatever, but we do think a lot about whether they're coming in through the front of the website or being directed to the website. And for us, historically, there was more directed to the website, which was actually helpful to us because it meant that the person coming to the website could control what part of the website they saw. Because, because again, our biggest challenge is that I'm fond of saying that sort of what you like most about a person or a thing is inextricable with what you like least. The incredible strength we have is the breadth of our offerings. That becomes a weakness if it's confusing or we're trying to offer up too many things or people can't navigate it, which is our ongoing battle, particularly with our website. So we try to really make sure that we can path people in through other places that get to exactly the content they want. We try to, and we're making investments in making a more role-based entryway into it so that you could see like as the CFO, this is what we think are the top things. We're experimenting with lots of things around microsites to get more information so people can path their own way through our website. We do have an app, if you will, that's called My Deloitte that allows people to really sort of control the experience and what they see and, and how they get notified of things that are going on in the marketplace. So those are a couple. Yeah, I love that. It's a great point that when it is unwieldy, sometimes it's like, well, yeah, that's because we have a lot of stuff, <laughs> you know, like it, it is, it's a, it's tough to keep track of everything and update everything and do all that stuff. But at the same time, obviously it's, it's necessary and people are engaging that. I love the role, the role based. I think that that's something that is one of those things you wake up one day and you go, oh yeah, why didn't we have that? <laughs> you know, <laughs> and you see works really well, especially as you can like the personalization and all the stuff that you can do to really hyper-personalize someone's experience to their role. And you're like, oh, this is, it's just cool stuff we didn't, we didn't ever have access to. We couldn't do it I know. It and, the, and the thing, the thing that it really unlocks is then we used to have to be a lot more omniscient or at least pretend like we were being omniscient, right? We had to sort of say like, we think we know exactly what people are looking at and what they're looking for and all that sort of thing. And by using digital technologies, you can allow people to really shape. You can listen in ways that that give you a lot of information. And our clients would say that they trust us enough to be willing to do that. So when we ask them, like, what are the top 10 things that are keeping you up at night? We can, we can synthesize that with what we think are the top 10 things that should be keeping them up at night. But it's a much stronger set of content then because it comes from everybody rather than us thinking that we just always have to land the top 10 things. I'm curious, specifically with executives, obviously senior executives are core to, core to you all. And especially in big companies, These folks are very busy and they have many interests. How do you focus in on campaigns that, that interest this group of people when it ends up being kind of a small number of people in aggregate that have a whole lot of influence? Yeah. So again, the, the first thing that we're really trying to do is make sure that we are using the channel that makes the most sense, Right. So, and that does include a person in front of a person, right? And so 
what we're trying to do through our digital channels is not pretend or overreach what those channels can do. Now, what they can do exceptionally well is, you know, again, they can kind of check to see whether or not people are asking for things that they're not finding within our current content suite. They can keep people abreast of things that happen in between, like, let's say you're an EVP of corp dev, you can keep people abreast of things between transactions that that might be regulatory changes or things like that. But you really have to pay attention to what is it that's on their mind. So you're telling them things they want to know and need to know, not just things you want to say, and then right-sizing it for the right channel to be able to do that. And again, sometimes that's a roundtable where they can talk to their peers. Sometimes that's a one-to-one thing that happens digitally. Sometimes that's one-to-many And so just really trying to optimize that. But having said all of that, it is very hard and it is tricky. And every day we do two things right and one thing wrong. So we're always trying to to work through how we do that better. But again, I think the biggest thing that we're trying to invest in right now is our listening capability. That's fascinating. What a great insight, right? I don't think there's a lot of marketers going out there saying that but well, the thing I need to do most is is listen more and talk less because we yeah. we all like to talk. You you mentioned that maybe there's you don't think of cutting budget items per se, but is there one area that you think that maybe you're not going to be investing as much in in the future or something that that you you haven't seen great results out of? So what we're trying to do is. I would say it slightly differently. So, so we are trying to do some things about, first of all, for the financial health of the firm, where we are trying to be pretty ruthless about what we're doing and when we're doing it and that sort of thing. So, so certainly it's not like we're just spending more and more and more. I do think we're trying to be really more evenly distributed. If you look at whether you think about it as a funnel or the journey or whatever the case may be, right? We need we want to be more distributed across the funnel, if you will, than we have been historically, and being very dogmatic about that. So to your point, we are we're being super careful about awareness campaigns just generally because we we do believe our awareness and consideration is is quite high so it needs to really have new intent for us and again most of the things i'm trying to go after are the on the loyalty spectrum versus just the true do you know about Deloitte? so that's a piece i think that we're really trying to work more cohesively with the business about there tends to be a well this other part of the business has five podcasts and i want six. Or I went to this great event, and so I want a great event. And so really sort of having those conversations together about what is the audience that you're having a hard time reaching, and let's talk about what that audience, where they want to see us, and what that might look like. Really being dogmatic about, okay, how are we going to know if we're successful? And then let us, I like to say, let us use our marketing superpowers to be able to modulate what we do within that activity. But the most important thing that we haven't always gotten right is having that conversation around what does success look like? Because the best content in the world, if we're not clear about who should be reading it and what they should be doing as a result have read that, is sort of interesting, but insufficient in the crowded world that we live in. I love it. That's great. I will say that 
going to five from five podcasts and adding the other one. It's all good in my book. In my book, that's all good. That's approved. Done, check. So I, I appreciate. <laughs> Got a, any stories of, some, of a campaign that you're that was your favorite? Yeah, there were a couple of them that we did do a campaign in early COVID that was called Come Together. And it talked about sort of how we thought about the world that was, we thought of COVID as sort of a respond, recover, thrive. And in respond, we believe that our role was, we're not a medical company, we don't save lives. And at that point in time, it was a medical emergency. And so our role in that was to make sure that we could help keep our people safe and our clients' people safe. And it wasn't to be making a lot of proclamations and worrying about a lot of things and stepping into waters that we shouldn't. When it got more into the respond, we did launch what we called Come Together, which were stories about how people and companies were coming together to make a difference in this world. And so like one of the stories we told was we had a lot of hospitality clients of ours who unfortunately, because of the the impact of reduced travel, had a lot of capacity, particularly like in their call centers. We had state and local governments that had a dramatic need for more information and for more call center capability to be able to reach their citizens. And so we did some really interesting work about trying to marry that capacity that was existing. So we had our hospitality clients use their call center capability to support state and local governments on the COVID front. So we were trying to tell stories and to come together that gave a little bit of hope, a little bit of resiliency, and a little bit of, of really sort of the magic of how we could come together to make for a better world. And I'm, I was very proud of that, both with respect to what it did internally with the conversations and then hopefully some of the external impact. It's it's a little bit newer, but we're doing some interesting work around what we call MADE, which is Make Accounting Diverse and Equitable, early stages. But again, those those are things that are really important to us because accounting is such a big part of our business, but it's really important to the world as you think about access to financial markets and what does that that profession, like if you think about all the access that that profession enables with respect to growth and prosperity and things like that, and and what would that world look like if, if it was more diverse and more equitable going forward. And those kinds of campaigns are really great because they allow us to engage with our people. Certainly that's on the top of our clients' minds. It's a societal good that we're very interested in and substantively participating in. And those are the types of campaigns that we really want to do a lot more significantly is what I would call the very experiential, omni-channel, multi-layered, integrated marketing campaigns. Think of whatever your whatever your vernacular is with respect to that. But those are the kinds of things that we want to do and think we can do well going forward. Yeah, I love that. I mean, obviously kudos on the campaign. That's really cool. And it's, it's, well, you know, I talk about the power of marketing. It's like that we get to vote with our dollars. That's what's so cool. If we make it a priority, it is a priority, right? It's like, it affects millions of dollars that are, that are supporting these used assets that are going out there in the world that, yeah, they make a huge difference. And you see marketers can, can do that. And yeah, it's just cool. It's awesome to hear. And I think it shows how we can have an impact in the classic (laughs) do well by doing good. Yeah, I love that. Let's get to the dust up. Uh oh. Here comes trouble. 
You may have heard that there was a dust-up involving yours truly. And now we've got a wild scrum with fights breaking out all over the place. And it is getting really ugly as we've got punches and kicks. This is where we talk about healthy tension, whether that's with your board, your sales team, your competitors, or anyone else. Suzanne, have you had a memorable dust-up in your career? I have had multiple memorable dust-ups in my career. And just to say something slightly provocative, I think if you're not having memorable dust-ups in your career, you're not pushing hard enough. So beware of, I would say, and I again, I've got a 13-year-old son, I say this to him all the time, beware of, beware of a week in which you weren't nervous or beware of a week in which somebody didn't disagree, et cetera, et cetera. Because if you string too many of those weeks together, it spells trouble for your own personal growth and and impact. But but I'll give you some options. Yeah, but a DJ will come in and steal <laughs> exactly. your set right out from under you. <laughs> exactly. So yeah, so I'll give you some options, right? I could tell a story about there was one time where I learned I learned it from just a general leadership perspective, right? Um, and I call it my breaking the rules story, right? There's one I've had a number that I've learned the hard way over the past two years around the tension between business unit and corporate. Certainly, I've been seeing for 25 years the tension between marketing and sales. Certainly, there's brewing, I think there's brewing healthy tension in organizations around the CMO and the rise of the CDO, CRO, CGO, depending on what what it's called in different industries. So pick pick your healthy tension. I, yeah, let's break some rules. I want to hear, okay. I want to hear what broke. So, so let me set the stage. So I had, grew up in the firm. So people knew a lot about me reputationally. It was not in this particular role. It was in a prior role, but I came into that role and I'd done a lot of things within the firm, but I'd always done things in that were roles where they hadn't necessarily been done before. So I had been brought in to establish new patterns, be creative about big thoughts, do new things for the firm. And in this particular role, I was coming in to run a particular part of the business. And it was, so it was a very different orientation to the role than I had previously been had. And there were certainly skeptics as to whether I could do do the work, whether I was up to the challenge. And Deloitte is filled of, full of really, really great people. So I say this with all due respect, but people want to know that they can kind of push on their leader and their leader sort of stands tall. And the big mistake I made was I came in and I believed that I had more permission to make changes than I probably did. But the bigger mistake that I made was I started breaking the rules without acknowledging that I knew I was breaking the rules and why I was breaking the rules. And so what ultimately ended up happening was there was after, let's call it six to eight months, there was a pretty strong correction (laughs) with respect to people saying both, and it came in the form of feedback, it came in the form, candidly, of my year-end review, and it came in the form of followership. And so the lesson I always tell people is that check your aspiration, make sure you know where you have permission to break the rules, not because you wouldn't break them. Like I, I, I really believe in breaking rules, but because you need to know that because if you don't have permission here, you need to get permission. You need to find your, your people that will be supportive of you to do that. 
And ultimately what I should have done is said, like, I know there's a rule around this. I know I'm breaking it. And I want you to understand why I'm breaking it, because that's an important part of getting us to where we need to get to. And so that's the the last piece of that, I think, is the critical piece. And so I've been hopefully much better about doing that going forward. Yeah, I usually went with the break it and then then ask for forgiveness route, which is 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 fraught with landmines often. Um, and again, don't don't get me wrong. I'm I'm not saying to anybody don't break the rules. I'm a big believer in breaking the rules, and I am a big believer that the reason why we all come into the roles we come into is because people want something different. They want change, so break the rules, but just be clear about the fact that you know you're doing it, and that people understand why you're doing it. So, let's get to quick hits. These are quick questions with quick answers, just like how quickly you can talk to people on your website with Qualified. Go to Qualified.com to learn more. Qualified's the best. They've been with us since the very first episode of DGV, and we love them dearly. Go to Qualified.com to learn more. Conversational sales and marketing, Qualified is the best, quick and easy, just like these questions. Suzanne, are you ready? I'm ready. Number one. What is a hidden talent or skill that's not on your resume? Okay, so I'm going to give you two. One is really frivolous and has no real value. And it is that I have a shocking ability, regardless of what time zone I'm in, what time I need to wake up, that I can wake up five minutes before my alarm goes off, which is actually wow, that's a, super a superpower for my husband because I have lots of 3.30 a.m. being on the West Coast and traveling a lot. So that's one But the other legitimate one that I do rely on quite a bit is I am very good at seeing the other side. It doesn't mean I need to agree with the other side, but I am typically very good about being able to understand what the other side to an argument is. Do you have a favorite book, podcast, TV show that you've been checking out recently that you'd recommend? I read a lot. So I just finished, book-wise, I just finished Seeing Serena which is a book about Serena Williams, who I love and respect. Anxious People is a really great book about how small moments matter. And you may or may not know that they matter for many, many years, but we need to hold ourselves accountable for being in the small moments and participating in a meaningful way. The movie Judas and the Black Messiah, it's like haunts me. I want everybody to watch it because I want us all to be haunted by that. And The Tortilla Curtain, which is book, not a movie. And then, and actually, I hope this doesn't come across as like gratuitous, but in preparing for this, I listened to a bunch of your podcasts and I really enjoyed them and will continue to do so because <laughs> they were really good about, I do like the, the tone and tenor of it. It's a, a subject matter that I spend a lot of time on. And it gave me, even though none of them are exactly what I'm experiencing, they give you, I love bo- podcasts because I, I like to listen to them when I'm walking and I like to sort of see where the free association takes me with to generate ideas for my own space so i love to hear that well thank you for listening and i appreciate the kind words but i also appreciate the thought about podcasts that's how i've always felt about it i mean obviously i created a podcast company but but it was always the thing for me that i found that podcasts because they're to not get too nerdy but it's it's augmenting reality right it's like it's something that you're listening to while you're experiencing the world and it's screen free which is so nice so you can do all these other things and you're right, it's kind of like the drive home or, or whatever that moment is where you can kind of get like a little bit of Zen meditation type 
feeling, a little bit of zone out, a little bit of listening, and it's unlocking some stuff in your mind. Yeah, I love it. I'm I'm here Absolutely. for it, obviously. But, and in COVID, I literally have created time for that, which I think is really important because I think the one thing that COVID yep. threatened to do was to hamper creativity and sort of strategic thinking and that sort of thing. So I have encouraged my team and um, and I do that quite a bit where I, I walk and listen. It's the, it's the canary in the coal mine, right? It's like, if you're not caught up on your shows, then it means that you haven't been, you haven't been out and about, you haven't been walking on your feet, probably right. not getting your steps in. Right. I know I'm with you. I'm, I'm right there with you. Do you have a non-marketing hobby that sort of maybe kind of indirectly makes you a better marketer? So I would say tennis. And I would say that for a variety of reasons. One, in it, do you play tennis? I've many years went to tennis okay. camp, so I, I know it pretty well. But. Okay. I would still be going to tennis camp if I could. But <laughs> so, so a couple of things that I think are good about tennis that keep me, I joke that it keeps me humble, which is something that the highs are high and the lows are low. But legitimately, the shot before the final shot is typically what matters. So I think that kind of mentality, right, around it's chestnut checkers. I think the other thing that's interesting about tennis as a sport is like the conditions are always different. You have to play your game, but you have to play your game against your opponent's game. Like you can't just play your game everywhere. I think that's a really interesting thing that makes me a better marketer. You can't like run out the clock. You have to actually win. So that's an interesting thing that I keep in mind from a marketing perspective. And last but not least, I think that the other interesting thing is that in modern tennis, you can't win and just have one dominant stroke or part of your game. You have to have a pretty robust, integrated game. And I think it's just been amazing to watch some of the older players like Roger Federer, Nadal, hopefully Serena, really use data and dramatically transform and really a change and adapt their game, which I, again, I think is absolutely true of marketing. I always say that, well, I wish I would have said when you asked me what my best campaign is, I wish I would have said, ask me in three months, because I always want that mentality to be like, it's, it's in 30 days, it's in 60 days, it's in a year, because we always have to be changing and modifying and adapting to capabilities and what the world looks like and what our clients need. Best advice for a first-time CMO who's trying to figure out their marketing strategy? Spend a lot of time on really understanding the business strategy and the aspiration there, and then use the language systems of the C-suite to be able to talk about your marketing strategy. Oftentimes I see marketers talk in marketing speak, and that works in a marketing organization. And you don't want to get rid of your superpowers. It's actually really important. But to land that in the CXO suite, you have to be able to talk through the language of the business. Suzanne, this has been wonderful. We have to have you back. I could talk to you for hours. Thanks again for joining the show. Any final thoughts? Anything to plug? No, I would love I would love to be back, Ian. Thank you. Thanks for doing the good work you do. I did see on your background again. I hope this isn't gratuitous, but you were an army captain and I have a niece and a nephew-in-law, if that's such a thing, that are in the, the armed services. And so given what's going on in the world, that's important. So thank you for that. Oh, awesome. Yeah, I appreciate the support. We all do. Thanks again, Suzanne. Everybody go to Deloitte, check it out. If, you, if you're already sharing some wallet with Deloitte, share a little bit more, <laughs> you know? And thanks again for joining. The Man Gen Visionaries is brought to you by our friends at qualified.com. 
conversational marketing company that's on a mission to transform the way B2B companies sell. Go to qualified.com to learn more.